Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Over the course of the summer of 2022, I'm going to interview 12 futurists and forward-thinking leaders. We will discuss how they identify trends, how they vet their sources, what trends they're following, and what's filling them with a sense of optimism. My hope is that our global audience of leaders like you can become better visionaries for your organization and be more prepared for our uncertain future. Today's guest is Rebecca Ryan. She and her team work with communities around the country to plan what their cities will look like 10, 20, and even 30 years into the future. Rebecca shares her favorite sources for picking up on signals and future trends. She also talks about a couple trends that have piqued her interest. 12 Geniuses is brought to you in part by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. That's the star with two R's, conspiracy.com. Rebecca, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. It's great to be with you again, Don. Excited to have you back. As you know, I'm talking with 12 futurists this summer, and the concept is we have a very large global business leadership audience. And I want to help our business leaders think more like futurists. And so I'm interviewing people like you to help them understand how you think, how you identify sources, how you vet those sources, that sort of thing, so they can become better futurists and visionaries for their organization. And so that's, that's where we'll start. Some of them may already have this futuring or visioning superpower, but it might just be like a muscle that's underdeveloped because... I think executives today, as the name implies, are intended to execute. And getting things done is a different set of muscles than thinking long term. So I'm willing to bet that being an executive may not be every CEO's superpower. It's what they're rewarded for, but many probably already have this kind of more visionary superpower. They just don't get to use it. Yeah. And you have a little bit of research that I think it's, would be worthwhile for you to share with the audience. So maybe talk about the, the survey and then what you found from that survey. Yeah. So getting ready for 2022, we put two surveys in the field to see if people were ready for the future. And one of them was about five-week signals that we were watching to see what survey respondents were doing with those. But the second one, and this is the one I want to talk about, was about how people use their time, like how executives use their time. This was, I'm, we're, we're now calling this the strategy paradox because wrap your head around these numbers. Of our sample, 95% said it is part of my job to think strategically about the future. And so almost everybody, which I'm not surprised because like our audience overlaps a lot with your audience. These are, these are executives. But the second part of this was how much time they spend thinking about the future and the average is between 90 seconds a day and four and a half minutes a day. That is a huge disconnect. Could you tell our audience who you typically serve? Because I think you're, you're a futurist, but you have a niche for the type of clients that you are serving. Yeah, so our clients are primarily public sector or immediately adjacent to the public sector. So for example, last year, we did an enormous project with a public utility, helping them get to carbon zero, figuring out what that vision would look like. It's public sector primarily. So any state, local government, municipality, economic development organization, workforce organization, 
anybody who sort of touches the commons is somebody who tends to, I mean, we just have a niche with this area. What are you reading, watching, or listening to that you would recommend for our listeners so they can better prepare for the future? There are kind of three categories of things that I look for. One is like the state of the art in foresight. Here, I'm, you know, reading magazines like Wired Magazine. The Copenhagen Institute for Future Study has just rebranded their magazine, which I have always loved. It's like the delicious thing I get in the mail once a quarter. It used to be called Scenarios. Now it's called Farsight. And so I don't miss out on those. That's just the state of the art, like what's happening in the field and in the profession. The second category of things that I listen for are signals. So these are weak signals. They're just the drip, drip, drip that tend to happen on the margins that make you cock your head to the side and say, what's going on there? And so for signals, I've got some routines of that, the most important of which is a Wednesday call every Wednesday with a bunch of other futurists from around North America. And we all collect signals about the future of local government. And we bring those and we share those and we try to do some sense making out of them. In addition, I have conversations about the future with anybody who I think is interesting. And then the third thing I do is I listen to a lot of podcasts that themselves are signals collectors. And I provided a list. You're welcome to put it in the show notes. Can you differentiate what is, or maybe give an example of what a signal is? Yeah. So a signal is, I should say it's a weak signal. So it's something that's not yet prevalent. So an example um, of a signal would be, uh, I was just in Raleigh, Durham, and we were working with a group of 50 people, half from the city, half from the innovation and entrepreneurial space. We had them do a 40 minute walkabout um, in this one area to look for signals of the future. And we, I got hundreds of photos back that they thought were signals of the future. But one of them were these like little parkettes. So these had started during COVID, you know, these tiny little spaces that were outdoor spaces, they had some green, but they haven't been taken down. And we've, we've learned that the city doesn't plan to take them down because they've become important gathering spots. These parkettes are maybe a signal of the future that we're going to continue to turn outside of our homes to be more outdoors. Um, gathering with people than maybe indoors. So that's an example of a signal. And that helps remind me, Don, that the third category of things I look at is trends. So the first thing was, what's the state of the art and foresight? The second one was, what's a weak signal? And the third one is a trend. And a trend is something that like, after a signal has gained a lot of momentum, and a lot of weak signals start to pool up, like, oh my gosh, we're seeing it in Raleigh, we're seeing it in uh, Austin, we're seeing it in Portland, we're seeing it everywhere, then it becomes a trend. You're like, wow, we're seeing this everywhere. And this is like what affordable housing and homelessness has become. 10, 12 years ago, there were a few communities that were struggling with homelessness. Now, every community we work with um, is, is facing into homelessness. So that's an example of a trend. And my trend process is really based on our clients. You know, every month, sometimes every week, we're working with a new client doing an environmental scan of trends for them. So they become my way of seeing trends. I look at it through my client's perspective. Whether people are visionaries or want to be visionaries or not, we all can do a better job of vetting the sources that are put in front of us. So what's your process for that? Always like try to look for primary sources. So my signals panel is an excellent example of this. You know, these are people from around North America 
who work in or near local government. And these are things they are seeing with their own eyes, right? So it's a primary source. This isn't, you know, some factoid that was on Facebook that may or may not have a a reputable source. But then, you know, when there are some organizations like the National Bureau of Economic Research has working papers, and those working papers are often trying to puzzle out what the future of inflation will be, what the future of the economy will be. So proven processes done by multiple researchers coming at the problem or the issue from multiple perspectives. Usually it's a global team of economists or researchers who are working on those papers. So mostly primary research. But if we have to get secondary research, like some newspapers do a really nice job of, we just worked with, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and there's a writer here who's working on the future of ghost kitchens and the future of the restaurant industry. And she's doing really good journalism about what's emerging, the signals that are emerging. For somebody who might be time-starved, as we we talked about, what would you suggest is an appropriate amount of time for them to be spending their time thinking about the future, reading about the future? It's not four and a half minutes, but, you know, knowing these types of executives or leaders who who are typically time-starved, what would you recommend? The quality of the time really matters. So I would rather have 15 minutes of your quality time than one minute here or there, because that stuff, that sort of one minute dip in, dip out, your brain is like Teflon. It just slides right off. You're able to make sense of things when you can connect it to other things you already know. So we hang new knowledge on existing hooks of knowledge. What social trend are you exploring right now? It's interesting because about three months into quarantine during the pandemic, we started to talk in our signals group about how this was going to impact mental health because we knew that alcohol use was going up, you know, alcohol sales were going up and we're like, okay, that's a coping mechanism. Then we started to hear about drug use going on and on. So mental health has a really long tail. The World Health Organization has said so. And of course, we know that from mental health experts. So from our perspective, this is interesting to us for several reasons. One is how is that going to impact the labor force? So we've seen some research that shows to up to one fifth, 20% of people who are still on the bench. And on the day that we're recording this podcast on, we've got two job openings for every one person looking in the United States. So the economy is already running really hot. So of those people who are on the bench, up to 20% of them are not coming back to the workforce because of a mental health issue, drug and alcohol issue. Then we know that we've got these violence and public safety concerns, and that impacts our quality of life in communities. I mean, New York City is saying everybody needs to come back downtown. Workers are like, I'm not coming back downtown. I'm not riding that train. I'm not going to be in that train station. I'm not going to walk on that street. So there are a lot of knock-on effects of this. And then finally, when you look at how mental health is affecting our children, our children are the future adults. So to think 10 years, you know, today's 16-year-old is tomorrow's 26-year-old, 10 years from now. And so if they're having a hard time going outside, if they're having a hard time meeting people, relating to people, and if you do that at scale, that portends one kind of a future that we'll all be living in. When you think about opportunities or positives to this mental health trend, do, do any come to mind? There's this stigma like, oh, my kid has ADHD or my kid has anxiety or my kid has depression. Well, when you suddenly realize like a lot of parents, kids have depression or whatnot, it makes you more willing to come out. I think that's really a positive thing to be able to talk about 
our kids' mental health challenges and our own mental health challenges. And hopefully we back that up with some health insurance that provides sort of a safety net for people or some more resources for people. So yeah, I do think that there are some positives that are coming out of it. What new technology are you tracking? I am all about the AI and algorithm. And I know a lot of people talk about this. I know you've had a lot of guests um, who talk about AI and algorithms, but for everyday people who, like me, who are really trying to wrap your head around the practical impacts, not the super nerdy impacts, but the practical impacts, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, every year does a, a lecture series called the Wraith Lectures. They're always in December. They invite a visiting brainiac to come in and do a series of four lectures. And the 2021 lecturer is um, a Brit who's at Cal Berkeley now um, talking about AI and algorithms. And I strongly recommend everybody listen to this four series episode. It is so clearly um, explained. And incidentally, um, I'm on the executive committee for the Association of Professional Futurists. And we give awards every year called the Most Significant Futures Work. I think it's going to be rebranded. But the Cal Berkeley professor who was featured in the Wraith series won uh, an award that I was on the evaluation team for. It's a video called Slaughterbots uh, that portends what, what is the future when facial recognition and drones merge and uh, what is going to be possible from non-state actors and state actors in the future of war. So this is the same guy who did the Wraith series, and it was so good. I'll tell you the one thing that put the biggest chill down my back listening to the Wraith lecture series is that algorithms are programmed for an outcome, right? So these, these algorithms are working on us. And for the algorithm to be successful in its program, it needs a very predictable human. On the other end, who will do what the algorithm needs it to do so that the algorithm can be successful. And here was the chill. He said that the most predictable humans are those who can be led down the path to extremism. We're up against an incredible force uh, trying to save democracy, um, prevent fake news, um, you know, sort of restoring the human-to-human, fact-based conversation. What's filling you with a sense of optimism? One of the things I don't do, as I mentioned earlier, is I don't spend a ton of time reading the national news for two reasons. One is the national news is doing some of the same things that social media is doing, right? They, in order to keep your attention, to keep you engaged, they've, they know that engagement and enragement go side by side, right? So I think about all the people who hated President Trump, who were glued to the New York Times for those four years, right? They just could not put the Times down. They just were sort of addicted to this like Trump dopamine hit. That's not useful in a lot of ways. I mean, as a, as a futurist and as a, I think a pragmatist, w- what is filling me with hope are actual people doing actual good things that make a difference for other people. And the national news doesn't allow this. It creates this ennui, right? It's like, it's at the national level. So it feels like it's stuff we can't affect. So it's like, we have a dread and we have double dread because we're like, I can't do anything about that. So instead, I get my hope and my inspiration from real people doing real things close to my neighborhood or in the circles that I touch. And there are many of those people. So my friend, Sarah Alvarado, she just started it took her a year and a half to concept this, but she has this effort called Own It. 
and it allows real estate agents, buyers and sellers to each give a little bit of every transaction that they make in the real estate um, transaction to put it into a fund that helps black buyers and families develop you know, their down payment so that they can start to develop intergenerational wealth. So it's like born here in Madison, but it would be easy to take anywhere. And what's already happening is like, if I'm selling my house, I'm looking for a realtor who is a member of own it to know that my, you know, this is the biggest transaction many of us will ever do in our lifetime. Um, and to put just a little bit into, into a jar for someone else makes a big difference. And we've got to get that generational wealth um, momentum moving. I love Yes Magazine for those of you who are looking for some good news. Again, this is real people doing real stuff that's making a positive difference in the lives of others. People like you, Don, you know, what you've done with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, what you've done with your podcast. I want to support people who are doing good work. I support a lot of my friends and friends of friends who are running for local elected office. That really matters. Any final advice? that you would have for leaders who want to be better visionaries for their organizations, something that we might not have covered already? Most of us live in a fast thinking environment. We're in an ecosystem where we are trying to manage 100 emails a day, 200 emails a day. And we're often making fast decisions about things that should be thought through a little bit more. So I want to just say, like, as a futurist, I want to give you permission to think slowly about things. And the second thing I would say is um, short-termism is killing us. It is, it, is, it is hurting us in the near term, and it's really hurting our kids. So my challenge in 2022 to people is what are you willing to give 10 years towards? What are you willing to put a decade into? Because if we think we're going to get a payoff in the next fiscal year for some of these things, like our diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility efforts, or, you know, our efforts around climate or any of these things that are the wicked problems of the day, we have got to broaden our lens. So what are you willing to give a decade to? Rebecca, thank you for being my mentor. Thank you for your time today. And thank you again for being a three-time genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thank you to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this episode. On next week's show, we'll hear from medical futurist Dr. Bertalan Meshko. Based in Budapest, Hungary, for years Dr. Meshko has been analyzing how science fiction technologies can become reality in medicine and healthcare. Thank you to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.